Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. Okay, so we're in Daniel chapter 4, uh, 5, and 6. We're going to open up uh, actually to there, but we're going to go to another passage just to begin with. Um, let's open with a word of grace tonight. So, Father, we just ask that you would humble us before the throne of the living God. The God who establishes kings and the God who removes them. And the God who is sovereign over all creation and is our redeemer. And the God who has made us and establishes us who gives us wisdom, who gives us discernment and understanding and insight, and by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit, who convicts us of righteousness and of truth and of judgment, of things to come. Make known to us who you are and continue to do so as we read these stories of Daniel and these kings. May we learn from them. May we understand that we ourselves might be transformed by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. We thank you now for these wonderful stories and for the application that, uh, that you will bring about. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as we go back for a second to put 4, 5, and 6 into context, we had talked about the chiastic arrangement of the book of Daniel, Right? And remember that chiastic arrangement meant that chapters uh, 2 was related to what? 7, and then 3 and 6, and 4 and 5. So uh, with that in line, uh, we've got one of these deals. So as we read chapter uh, uh, 4, we're going to look at 4 and 5. And as we look at 6, we're going to look at uh, 3 and 6. That that doesn't mean that there's no connection to chapter 2 or to chapters later either, but, but we've got to keep, keep that schema in mind that Daniel, I think, has clearly arranged it as. Four and five are both going to be about pagan kings, you know, about before God. Chapter three was about Daniel's three friends, and six is going to be about Daniel, uh, and we'll find that they are tremendously paralleled. One of the things I like about Trumper's, um, uh, bless you, uh, textbook that I'm having you guys read for this class, and I mentioned that Cindy, I think, was before the first class, if I do this class again in the future, I think I'm going to choose um, uh, Tim Keller's textbook next time, um, uh, Counterfeit Gods, and because and, I think just the issue of idolatry is just this great applicational theme that we can, we can take from it. So I, meaning I encourage you all to read the book if you haven't read it, uh, which I mentioned last week. But the good thing with Tremper's textbook on the book of Daniel, his commentary on the book of Daniel, is he just, he, he just keeps it simple, right? Uh, you know, if you've read it at all, what's... What's the theme of Daniel thus far? Sovereignty of God. Right? God's in control. 
God establishes kings, he removes them. And of course, to Israelites in exile, living in Babylon, or even the remnant that's still left over in Jerusalem and Judea, uh, this is a message they need to know about, they need to hear. Because it just doesn't look like that. And has that ever happened in your life? It don't look like you're in control here, big guy. Because I'm supposed to be one of your blessed people, and it ain't working out too well. You know, right? And we all experience this. You know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I don't like it here. And so how could you be my God, you know, and allowing this to happen? You know, and oh, we got all these promises. You know, he won't let us be tempted by what we can bear, and he'll provide, you know. And they go so far sometimes, don't they? You know? And so, to the Israelites in exile, suffering, uh, this message, God is in control, uh, is, uh, is very much uh, pertinent as well. Let's jump to a few other passages that's really going to be relevant, most notably for chapter 5, um, before we get started here. And I'm on the theme of humility, because that's what's really going to come to us in 5. Nebuchadnezzar is going to humble himself, Belshazzar is not, uh, as we look at the stories of, of 4 or 5. So James 4, 6, none of these are on your outlines. These are all boned, bonus added material. You didn't pay for this. Oh, either. Uh, James 4, 6. Here we go. It says in James, God gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. First Peter, just a couple pages over, 5.5. Five. You younger men, likewise, subject, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Psalm 138, of course, is what these verses are actually getting it from. 138 verse 6, yeah, that's right. Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. All right. Proverbs 3, 34, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. All right. He scoffs at the scoffers and gives grace to the afflicted. And then Matthew 23, uh, 12, Whoever exalts himself, shall be humbled, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, these are, are, are probably familiar verses, if not familiar themes, for, for many of us. But what we have to remember is, the force of these verses in an ancient context. You know, you talk about Aristotle's virtues, humility ain't one of them. In the ancient world, Humility is not a virtue. Who has humility? The shamed. The poor. The ones who can't get honor. This isn't something you aspire to. It's something you're stuck with. And yet, notice the, the verses from the Old Testament. Meaning, this is not just Jesus coming in teaching something radically new, though it comes across something radically new. It's really from an Old Testament. In fact, these stories of Daniel exemplify these themes. They, 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 they tell in story what Psalm 138, verse 6 tells uh, in um, poetry uh, there as well. So, God opposes the proud, 
but it gives grace to the humble. So here we go. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. So, and as I go through the story here in Daniel 4, please uh, let me know if you've got questions or comments and things like that here uh, as we go. I'm just going to kind of really give the overview of what's going on. We'll read a lot of the story um, um, as well. But actually, I'm going to scroll down. I'm going to start in 4.4. So here we go. I, Nebuchadnezzar, that's interesting all by itself, isn't it? You don't expect the biblical narrative to be told in the first person of a pagan king. Very, very intriguing, huh? And I think Daniel has done this uh, myself. Uh, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream. We've seen this, the- this theme before. And, made it my, uh, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring in my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. All right, we'll skip down to verse 8, because verse 7 is the answer is that none of them could do it. Verse 8, but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, uh, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that you are a spirit, that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream, uh, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my mind. As I lay on my bed, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Now, in as far as we can discern, and we're a lot better able to understand what's going on now because we have discovered, you know, boatloads full of um, Akkadian documents. And again, this is an Akkadian people, an Akkadian language. Akkadian is the, the father, the parent language of a Hebrew. So Akkadian history goes back long before you know, Moses, uh, uh, ultimately as well. What, it's, what we understand, this might be... Oh, there, actually, I have this on your notes. Here we go. Very good. So point number, um, page 9. Uh, let us see. There's a huge tr- a tree... Where it's a symbol of fertility, growth, and prosperity. All right, we're going to read. It. We're going to read this in a second, but let's let's get some preface as well. All right, in the ancient Near Eastern world, what's what we, we we call this area, this time frame, and this geographical designation, the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, the tree a tree symbolizes the whole world as God, or for them, the gods have arranged it. This is the this is creation, in other words. This tree represents creation. The king himself, in ancient Near Eastern mythology, the king himself is kind of the, um, the, the true image of God within the created realm. So the tree is kind of this created realm. The king is the image of God within the created realm. He's the divine man representation uh, of it all as well. So how's that? All right, so let's go back. With that in mind, then, to the vision itself. Here we go. The tree grew large, verse 11, and it became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole world, of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, 
And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is probably getting excited, because this is, this is good news. This is me. And I'm providing for my people, and for the kingdom, and for all the beasts. And, and you know, this is good news. All right? But remember, he was troubled by the dream, right? Verse 5, and he's greatly distressed, and alarmed, and fearful as well. So verse 13, uh, I was looking... In the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher. Okay, it, it, just, just think an angel. My Bible says an angelic watcher, but notice that the word angelic is in italics. All right, the Greek, the, the uh, Aramaic here, just says a watcher. But a watcher in, um, it just means an angel. So saying an angelic watcher is fine. It's an angel. That's all it is. How's that? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think in the same uh, vein as we do, but from a biblical perspective, it's an angel. A holy one descended from heaven, and he shouted out, and he spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Now you know why he's distressed. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, and the new grass of the field, and let them be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time, probably seven years, pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. Let me scroll up here a little bit. In order that the living... May you know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and set over it, sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, the king Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you tell me its interpretation. I think he's got a good clue, though, because this is common imagery that apparently was well known in the ancient world. And, you know, so Nebuchadnezzar probably doesn't, he's not, that's why he's distressed over this. He knows Whatever this ultimately means, it's troubling, and I'm hoping, Daniel, you're, you know, Belteshazzar, you're going to help me out and comfort me. And, and of course, he doesn't, right? Daniel goes on to tell him the dream and its interpretation, and it's it's not going to be good news. Okay, so any questions here at this point? All right, we're rolling. All right, verse twenty. Then we'll start up there. Daniel says, "The tree that you saw, which became large." Uh, and uh, strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which food was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the air of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and have grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. All right, we'll stop there for a second. Now, um, I, I think the reader of Daniel, and the, you know, the original readers, early readers here, ancient Jewish readers, are, are going to remember Babylon is associated with Babel. Right? Not only geographically, but even the term Babylon and Babel. Right? There's just, it's the same word in Hebrew and Aramaic. So, you got a tree reaching to the sky. Is the Tower of Babel? I think there's a 
I think there's an, there's an allusion to it. There's, there's, it's there. The imagery, the par- I think the parallel's there. I don't know if I even put that on the outline at all. Did I say that anywhere? Probably not, right? Um, what good are those notes? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, as well. so, so thinking in these terms as well. But what's the problem in Babylon? Or, I'm sorry, in Babel, the arrogance of man, the pride of man, right? That's the, the, the lack of dependency upon uh, God, upon Yahweh uh, um, as well. So, nonetheless, now then, this is not going to be good news for the king. So, here we go. So, uh, let me scroll down here. What verse was I on there? Thank you. So, I'm on 24 now? No, 23 now. Okay, very good. So, um... And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, verse 23, a holy one descending from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass and the, etc., etc., skip down to verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the, the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind. Oh. Let's see if Daniel lives after he tells him this one. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, seven years perhaps, will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. (laughs) I'm glad you laughed, because that really is Daniel's way of saying, I hope you spare my life. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Right? Okay, if you were in our study uh, last quarter uh, of biblical interpretation, we talked about one of the roles and the functions of prophecy. Prophecy exists to summon the people to act. Prophecy does not exist to prognosticate about the future, to pontificate. The objective is to get you to do something about it. And Daniel says, okay, look, here's the dream. Here's his interpretation. You got seven years, but if you repent now, there may be a way out of this. It's not etched in stone necessarily. Sorry for the pun for last week's study. Um, uh, It's not etched in stone necessarily that says, well, this is absolutely going to happen to you. The whole point of this is, so that you will know that heaven rules. And if you will recognize that heaven rules now, you might be spared all this. Yeah, so like Daniel, and it's like, yeah, that'll be good for me too. Okay, here we go. Verse 28. Um, well, the, the, the parallel, the question is, is this parallel with, with Nineveh and Nona's message? How about Nineveh and Jonah's message? Okay, uh, yeah, I, I have audible dyslexia. So, um, uh, of course, right? In, in the sense that, yeah, the message is uh, um, uh, always to 
bring people to repentance. I mean, sometimes a prophet's speaking to encourage continued behavior in the good side. But most often it's to get them to repent, to get them to recognize that, the, that God rules or to be dependent upon Yahweh, etc. Right? It's always God or self. It always simplifies to that as well. So the parallel is always going to be there. Oh, very good. Okay, so verse 28. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, now all this happened meaning the story I'm about to tell you is what happened. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Ding, ding, danger, danger, danger. Not a good thing. As a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Remember, an ancient document is going to repeat. It's an oral document. It's meant to be read aloud. And it's going to repeat things that it wants stressed. It's really easy to read this and figure out, well, what's the message for us today? It's, it's just... The Most High is the ruler of the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's verse 25. That's also verse 32. Heaven rules, verse 26. Right? The moral of the story, verse 27. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, in case it may be a prolonging of prosperity for you. So, verse 33. All this happened immediately to Nebuchadnezzar. And he becomes like a beast of the field. All right, so let's skip down now uh, to verse uh, 34, I guess it would be. But at the end of the period, now notice it picks up first-person narrative again now. Right? We, we had gone to Daniel apparently being the narrator, and now Nebuchadnezzar's back in being the narrator. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High... And praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What has you, or what hast thou done? At that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. And so I was reestablished and my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And I mean, it doesn't take many readings to go through Daniel 4, right? And know what needs to be underlined and highlighted if you underline and highlight in our Bibles. Uh, and the morals of the story uh, here as well. Now, remember, Nebu- remember um, the hanging gardens of Babylon were the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So when he says earlier, uh, uh, look, at, look what, at this Babylon that I myself have built. 
Uh, according to an ancient historian named Herodotus, the city walls of Babylon were, were eight miles long, uh, you know, in, in, or after eight kilometers in circumference, um, and were wide enough for a four-horse chariot to make a full U-turn. Right? This is on top, on top of the wall. This is massive, right? And of course, well, I think it's the Euphrates that's right there, right? The Euphrates River is going to go right through the city. I mean, this is an incredible, impregnable city of immense beauty that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Look what I have built. And of course, no, it's the Lord who has established his dominion as an everlasting dominion. In verse 35, it says, I don't think this is on your notes, by the way, but I noticed it as I was reading through it. It says, um, he does according to his will in the host of heaven. Host of heaven is often a reference to the angelic beings. And notice the next verse, the next clause says, and among the inhabitants of the earth. So it's amongst the angelic beings and amongst the, uh, those who, who uh, humans, humanity as well. Right? And who can say to him, what have you done? And of course, in humbling, well, actually, that's, I won't reference it, but in First Corinthians, I'll, I'll give you the reference, First Corinthians 10, verse 11, and Romans 15, verse 4. Uh, let me, I'll pull up Romans 15, verse 4. First Corinthians 10, you know what, it's probably worth the reading all of First Corinthians 10. So First Corinthians 10, I'm actually going to look at verses 1 through 11, and then Romans 15, 4, with the two references here. Okay? Uh, and the, the, the moral to the story of this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, is the same moral of the story that Daniel's readers are going to get. Hence the reason for referencing it here um, as well. Uh, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, wandering through the, through the wilderness, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 6. These things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 7. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. No, let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did. Um, sounds like our churches. Uh, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 15, verse 4 as well. We can read the Old Testament stories and learn from them, Paul's saying. We, we can learn from them. And, and that's exactly what Daniel 4 is doing, isn't it? Right, uh, Paul is telling us uh, a, a story. I'm sorry, Daniel's telling us a story to tell the Israelites. Look, we, we've referenced this a few times now, right? Uh, Bel, Marduk, and Sin are, are the Babylonian gods. They don't rule over Yahweh. It looks like it. I recognize that. No problem, because in the pagan society, if you were conquered by another government, then that government's god's better than your god. But Yahweh's saying, no, no, not, not the way it works. Not the way it works at all. In fact, I am the Lord. Okay, so very good. Any questions on Daniel 4? It's an interesting little story. There's, there, there are subtleties to the story that are probably 
uh, uh, kind of provocative and things like that. But uh, as well, anybody thoughts, questions, comments, or ideas? All right, now we'll go to Daniel five. Then my name is Daniel. Daniel chapter five. Belshazzar is a king. Uh, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, technically, his son—I'm uh, sorry—he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His father is a man named Nabonidus, and uh, Nabonidus was actually, for all kinds of reasons, God bless you, ruling outside of Babylon, uh, in in a uh, um, another area of of the empire, because he was having trouble controlling the entire empire because it was so large. So, as far as we can gain. Belshazzar was his son, was ruling from Babylon. But Nabonidus is technically, you know, they're, they're kind of co-regents, but Nabonidus is actually uh, more formally uh, the emperor. But Belshazzar is taking control over in Babylon as well. So this is the, the grandson of, of, of um, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 10 it says, the queen entered the banquet hall. Chapter 5, verse 10. That's the queen mother. Okay. Chapter 5, verse 10, that is, the, that is, I know it's not his wife, because you'll notice his wife is present, all of them, in verse 2. So Belshazzar's wives are all at the banquet. It's, this is the queen mom who, en, who, en, who enters in. Uh, Nebu, means it's his grandma. This is grandmama, Nebuchadnezzar's wife. And she knows what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in, in the stories earlier, and she knows who Daniel is. She remembers this. Obviously, if, you know, if your husband were out eating grass, you'd probably remember too. Uh, I'm not going to forget those years, you know. Uh, it was easier to cook for him back in the day. I just let him graze, you know. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> all right, we're going to let that one go. Uh, here as well. So chapter 5, 1 and 2 to set the stage. Belshazzar the king had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he's drinking uh, wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar, his technically grandfather, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then... They brought the gold vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God. Notice the repetition of that phrase. You don't need to say that. The Israelite readers know that, but it's emphatic, isn't it now? The house of God, which was in Jerusalem, which we already were told that in the previous verse, but again, it's stress. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines, again, repeating that, drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the God's of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, so problematic, isn't it now, right? Um, namely, they're taking holy vessels and profaning them, right? And using them for uh, uh, profane uh, 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 items as well. Now, this banquet, if we skip to the end of the chapter for a second, which I think we've referenced before as well, uh, verse 30, it says, The same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Okay. This night, this banquet, is the night before a major battle. And he's rallying the troops, is what he's doing. He's holding a great banquet to, to come on, guys, 
we got a big war on our hands tomorrow. The Persians. The Persians are threatening the Babylonian Empire, and in fact, the next night, the Persians overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And so, he knows how big a battle this is, how significant it is, and uh, he's going to throw this great feast uh, um, as well. In fact, the similar, it's a similar feast to the one going on in, in Esther, in the book of Esther. Xerxes is having a big feast on the eve of his attempted conquest of Greece uh, um, as well. So, so he's probably, uh, if that's the case, by the way, then this is October the 11th of the year 539 B.C., in case you're wondering, <laughs> uh, um, as well. Uh, anything happened that year? you remember? Okay, very good, uh, as well. So, okay. Let's see, I'm going to mention, I'll mention that later, so I'll save that for later on as well. Okay, so now, worshiping the gods of the vessels, by the way, is a bad thing. Um, the temple vessels, what we're talking about now is the items that they stole from the temple in Jerusalem, which could include the lampstand, the table of showbread, uh, the incense altar, and I think perhaps the ark. We say perhaps the ark because we really don't know if the ark was even there at that time any longer. The ark has disappeared from the story. All right? it, it, it suddenly disappears from the story of kings. It's, it's gone. And no one knows why, and there's all kinds of speculative theories as to why it's gone. Well, you know, I, I personally think, I'm not even an Old Testament scholar, so what I think here is totally irrelevant. Um, I'm making it up on the fly. Uh, uh, is that the Babylonians took the ark of the covenant. Uh, uh, as far as we know, it was taken by the Babylonians. And what did they do with it? They melted the gold down. And they made cups out of it. And they had a banquet with it. This is, this is the ark. This is, this is a, if not, it's the lampstand. And it's the table of showbread. And whatever, you know, the, the, anything that had gold and, and silver and, and wood, it, this is that's what they're doing. They're using it for uh, the purpose of a banquet here, here as well. Okay? Questions, comments? Yes, what? It's uh, somebody familiar because, oh, I don't think it's, the question is, are, do we have an illusion? Is Daniel doing that uh, um, in verse 4 with the gold, silver, bronze, wood, iron, wood, stone? Um, yeah, the, and there's also a couple other items in uh, the statue of Daniel 2 that aren't in this one also. The clay, so that is, is, is awkward. But what's interesting, and you might have something there, it would take some more research, uh, uh, Wes, is the, is the fact that the stone is last on that list. That's what, that's what intrigues me the most and would get me to inquire further about it. Yeah, it starts with gold, it ends with stone. That would get me to inquire maybe that there is something there. So, very good. So, uh, very good. All right, here we go. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged. That would freak you out too and wonder what's in the, in the drink, right? Began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. The king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke instead of the wise men of Babylon, any man... Who can read this inscription? And guess what? None of them could do it. Verse 8 and 9, they couldn't do it. So verse 9, Belshazzar grew alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Again, notice the parallels with chapter 4, right? 
Notice the parallels with chapter 4. There are parallels with 2 also, but especially 4, 4 here as well. So the queen mom has to come in, hey guys, I know this guy named Daniel, and he's really cool. He, he, he'll come this, and we all know the story, so uh, here we go. So the queen mom comes in, and um, she said, oh king, live forever, because that's what she's supposed to say, uh, even though it's her grandson. Do not let the, the thoughts uh, alarm your face grow pale. There's a man in the kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had said that in chapter 4. Uh, and in the days of your father, technically it's a grandfather, but that's how they, the language is used back then. The days of your father, I lost my place there. Oh, well, that, 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 I need a verse number. Uh, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. All right? So, get Daniel, is the moral of the story here. And we'll skip down now. Daniel coming into the scene. So, Daniel's brought in before the king. No, no verse 13 here, uh, because the introduction. Are you Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah? Right? This is, this is written to the exiles from Judah. So it's very uh, relevant to bring them into this, uh, the story as well. Who my father brought in from Judah. Right? Which makes, by the way, it's also, uh, um, Belshazzar saying that would be a way of making himself superior to Daniel. Oh, you're one of the conquered peoples, of, you know, with the inferior gods. Because, you know, my dad conquered you and all that good stuff as well, right? Yeah, I'm better. That's right. Here we go. Verse 14, I heard about you. <laughs> my mom, grandma just told me. A spirit of the gods is in you. you know, illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom, and, and in verse 14, have been found in you. Now, uh, just now, uh, the wise men of the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read the inscription, make, make known to me the decree. Um, uh, let me see. I want to skip down to verse 17. So here we go. Just save a little bit of time here. Verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts. Because the king's going to bestow all these gifts upon him. Keep your gifts for yourself. Uh, or your, your rewards, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I'll read the inscription to the king, and I'll make known to, it, to you the interpretation. Uh, the interpretation on him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty. He gave it to you. Grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language, feared and trembled before him, whomever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beasts, and his dwelling place was with wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like the cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you... His son, thank you, George, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of the house before you? And you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, you've been drinking wine from them. And you praise the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, 
which do not see or hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified. Okay. That's, right, you can see the moral of the story here, right? It's, 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 it's there. It's easy for the reader to see. It's encouraging. It's humbling. Um, it's uh, convicting as well. So now we've got another king who's also proud and arrogant and boastful and doesn't recognize that the Most High God has given his sovereignty to him so that this king can rule. What's this king going to do? Well, we know what Nebuchadnezzar did. Here we go. Verse 5. Now this inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsen, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Now remember, this is the night before a major battle, by the way. All right. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient in Paris. Your kingdom has been divided and will be given over to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar gave orders, verse 29, that they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority over as third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Uh, it's, uh, well, I think it's, the, the, the language it's written in is, is uh, um, uh, Aramaic as well. So it's just an Aramaic language. So, and, and, and it's left there in the text for us. And by the way, we really don't know what many, many tekel uparasan actually mean. Uh, the best we can glean from it, of course, Dan, Dan, in other words, Daniel's taken its meaning and has, uh, here's, I have it on the bottom of page 10. All right. Okay, many, many tekel uparasan. So when you repeat something, many, many twice, um, it's repeated for emphasis. That's point number one there. As nouns, there are units of money, mina. Okay, you, you see that, right? The Aramaic mina. Mina, mina, shekel, and a half is probably what these mean. Okay? But as interpreted by Daniel, they're verbs. Well, see, he understands them as verbs, meaning numbered, weighed, and divided. Oops, sorry about that. Numbered, weighed, and divided. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. So Daniel's taking them in this in this nonsense as well. And of course, the next day, the kingdom is lost. All right, so at the top of page 11 on your notes, I, I mentioned, here's the reference to Babylon now. The beginning of the Babylonian Empire was associated with the confusion of languages. And now it is again at the end of it. Right? This, this language that, that he can't discern and understand what it's supposed to mean. Again, these four words... They have to be, you know, a word is meaningless without a context, right? So Daniel says, here's the context of what these words are getting at. And uh, your kingdom is divided and about to be conquered. Um, And, of course, Daniel's rewarded, but I put down in the outline, hours later it was meaningless. So, congratulations, Daniel. Um, But, by the way, Daniel is going to, you know, it's kind of like when a company takes over another company and, you're you know, you're a high officer and they kind of roll you into a, a good suite. You know, they don't fire you. One of the officers, you know, so Daniel's going to have some role and responsibility uh, even amongst the Persians as well. Uh, so, all right, let's take a break there, and we'll do t- Daniel six now, and, and bring the story here to the Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel six. Now, Daniel six parallels Daniel three, 
as we already mentioned, and again, the situation is the people of God are suffering persecution. And the difference between the two, two chapters is this. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace because they did not participate in pagan practices. Whereas Daniel will be thrown in the lion's den because of what he did do. Right? Namely, he would not refrain from the worshiping of Yahweh. So there's a, little, there's, there's, there's a unique difference between them as well, but obviously they still parallel each other uh, uh, greatly. Uh, it's almost the same thing, except one is a mandate that you do something that, uh, in Daniel 3, that you do that which Yahweh will not permit you to do. And in Daniel 6, it's the decree is, you can't do something that Yahweh demands that you do. Yeah. So one's a negative, one's a positive. So here we go. So let's skip down to verse 4. Now, the beginning of verses, verses 1 through and 3, um, well, actually, let me reference verse 1. There's a king named Darius, and let's see if I have it on there. Uh, Darius the Mede. Um, in all honesty, we have no idea who Darius the Mede is. Um, there is never any historical discovery for a king named Darius uh, at all. So we don't know if this is a throne name that someone else took uh, after him. The first king of the Persian Empire was Cyrus. And Cyrus is an extremely important figure uh, in biblical history. He's mentioned by name in the book of Isaiah as the one who will let the exiles come back to Israel. And in fact, he does. He issues a decree that the Israelites can return to Palestine. Now, what we're going to notice is Daniel is still in Babylon. Cyrus has already issued the decree. No matter who this Darius guy is, it doesn't matter, because day number one, when, when the Persians conquer, you know, at the end of chapter 5, verse 30, Cyrus made a decree that the, that the Israelites can return. Daniel stays. So that's interesting in, uh, in and of itself here. Uh, and by the way, a lot of the exiles stayed. A lot of them did not return home and made the, some of the prophets upset, by the way. You're supposed to go home, and then you're supposed to rebuild the temple, and they... The ones that went home didn't rebuild the temple, and all that kind of stuff was happening as well. So Cyrus is really important. We don't really know who this Darius is. He might be some throne guy who just takes on a throne name, meaning he's somebody that we know of from ancient history, but he takes on this name, and we don't know which guy did that, uh, who might be ruling. Um, maybe, maybe Cyrus has given him authority to rule or something like that as well. We, we really don't understand exactly who he is. But nonetheless... Here's a story. We're now basically in the Persian Empire now. No longer in the Babylonian Empire. It's now a new empire that's taken place. And so verses 1, 2, and 3 basically reference the hierarchy that's been established. Oh, I've got these satraps, and I've got all these, you know, commissioners, and yada, 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 yada. And of course, Daniel uh, was given a high position, and it's going to make some people jealous. So verse 4. The commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs, but they could not find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And the man said, the man said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So, verse 6, they go to the king, and they say, O king, live forever. Um, that's what you say if you want to live forever. 
and all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, high officials, the governments, they basically they go on to say, King, we want you to establish a statute, middle of verse 7, uh, and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. And the king established the injunction, and he signed the document. Because, again, this is arrogant, prideful kings who rule over the world, basically, right? So why else why would he not uh, do so? Uh, he signed the injunction, uh, the document, so that it may not be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, and that is the injunction. Okay, so, uh, here it is. Now, this is, there's a great moral to the story here also. You know, for all of us. Um, you can see this principle in what we call the pastoral letters, the letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus, where he tells those who are you know, he's telling Timothy, these are the types of qualifications necessary for someone to be recognized as a pastor. They have to be above reproach. Above reproach. Above reproach means you cannot find an accusation against them. So it's pretty incredible that you have to look in verse 4. They're trying to find a ground of accusation. The first thing to note is there wasn't one glaringly obvious. They have to look for such. And that's kind of what Paul's getting at when he says, this, this is the requirement. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just basically means, look, you, you live your life well in accordance with the precepts of God. It doesn't mean you never make mistakes, but you acknowledge your mistakes when you make them. And they're not very frequent anyways. And they're certainly trivial. They're not something that's going to be able to, hey, you know, we can go to the king and say, you know, the other day, he really didn't cut that piece of pie in half, and he didn't share, you know, quite, quite well. Come on, let's find something serious. Right? So they realize, again, by the way, now also, something that I think we can apply and say, hey, let's all aspire to this. Not only do they have to look diligently to find an accusation, but they can't find one. And then they realize, the only way we can do it is to find something against this God. We can trap them on some religious grounds, right? We can, we can bring, right, just apply this to the corporate world. We can put this person in a situation where they're going to have to fudge the truth. Because we know they won't do it. And they're going to have to compromise. And they won't do it. That's how we'll get them. You know, it's, it's that kind of an application uh, um, there as well. Now, what's also interesting about the decree that the king makes is this decree is basically going to make the king like the highest-ranking guy in the world, right? But he can't even break his own law. It's, an inju- it's a law that, he, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked, even by the king. Which means the king is not the greatest power in the world. The law is more powerful than him. There's just this interesting irony uh, about the whole story there as well. All right, somebody have a question or a thought or a comment? You guys are really quiet today. Verse... 10. Let's go down to verse six, 10 then. Here we go. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, that's important because he's doing this very intentionally then, he entered his house. Now, it's not up? Oh, I'm sorry. You guys didn't tell me I wasn't reading up there. Very, very good. Here we go. Thank you. Um, very good. Um, he entered his house, and now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees, which is a good place to kneel. Three times. I just find that interesting. He kneeled on his knees. Whatever. Okay. What else did he kneel on? You know? 
Three times a day. I'm not making fun of the Bible here, by the way, just for clarification's sake. I'm just bringing out something that's interesting as well. Three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So he's not intentionally breaking the, you know, the law. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to defy this law with something new. This, look, the law is, all right, I'm going to do it. And um, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel. They, they were spying on him. Because he's in his own house, right? Um, they spied on him. And they, uh, uh, let's see, verse 11 here. And they uh, found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And they approached and spoke before the king and said, didn't you do all this stuff? And wasn't the deal was, no one could do this. Well, guess what? We found this guy named Daniel, and he did it. All right, and so, verse, uh, let's skip down to verse 16 here, unless you guys have a question or comment there. Oh, here's, oh, by the way, praying towards Jerusalem. Right? Why would he pray towards Jerusalem? It's where the temple was. Yeah, it's not where the temple is. It's where the temple was. The temple is always the center of an ancient society. It's the focal point. You pray towards the temple. Muslims today pray towards the temple. The Kaaba is in Mecca. And they're facing the Kaaba. So when they don't know where the Kaaba is, they face east. Okay? The east is always the land of the rising sun, by the way. And a literal translation of the Greek for east would be land of the rising sun. Um, because in the ancient world, you're never guaranteed that the sun's coming up the next day. So you're grateful when it does. So you pray towards the land, hoping the sun comes up, right? Because you know you need it for life. All right, so you, a Muslim prays to the east when they don't know where Mecca is, or they're not exactly certain of it, right? But otherwise, they pray towards Mecca. A Jew prays towards Jerusalem. That, that there's... It's just the ancient way they did that, and that's where Islam got, got its ideas from as well. Um, notice that, by the way, Daniel opened his window to pray, to, to pray towards Jerusalem. He's like, I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to hide from this one. Okay? I always do it this way. My custom is to do it this way. I'm, he's doing it privately. In his, he's not flaunting this, by the way. He's not going to go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go out in the public square and I'll do it. You know, he's, he's not flaunting this. He's not being insightful. You know, he's not being, you know, one of those arrogant, you know, <laughs> way Christians can be sometimes, right? You know, jerks. Um, you know, uh, I, I'll show them. But, and they spy on him, and they, and they find him as well. So here we go. Verse 16, the king gave orders. Now, the king, by the way, likes Daniel. This is a problem then. And Daniel was brought in and cast in the lion's den. Right? And the king's trying to get out of this, by the way, but the Persians remind them that you can't, verse, end of verse 15, um, no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. End of verse 15. So, in 16, the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, that's a great adverb, isn't it? Constantly serve. Will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought in and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. And the king went off to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. 
And the king arose with, with the dawn at the break of the day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a trembled voice. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's and Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. May my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. The king was very pleased. Are we okay on the screen? No? Not very good. The king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And, then, um, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them and their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. All right, now talk to me for a second now. What do we hear in this, past, in this story? From Daniel, what are we hearing? Okay. God's in control. Okay, the moral of the story, God's in control. Right? He trusted him as well. Now, in regards to the other stories in Daniel, what are we hearing? What, what comes to the surface in this story that we've already heard before in parallel accounts? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're going to be faithful in regardless. God sent his angel. Spared, Right? No harm. Talk to me on that one. Talk to me. No harm. No smoke on their clothes. They didn't even have the smell of smoke. Daniel doesn't even have a scratch from the lion. God, God's exalted through it. I'm, I'm looking for the parallels in the story first off, but yeah, very good. Yeah. An angel protected them. The angel was with them. This, this is one of the glaring thing also now. I, I'm sorry. And so they did something that continually honor God. Okay, very good. They did it with humility. Okay, very good. That's right. Uh, in the storyline, though, also, Jenny, you had it. What was it? The executioners themselves were killed. Although, in, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's the executioners. In this one, it's the accusers. Right? Because there are no... By the way, this is not an execution. Okay? Uh, th- there's, uh, did I put that on your notes anywhere? It's an ordeal. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's an ordeal, not an execution. An ordeal is a, has a time limit on it. An execution has no time limit. It's like, stay there till they eat you. Yeah, you burn or they eat you. Or, that's an execution. An ordeal is, a, you know, it's like, in, in the ancient world, they'll throw you into the river, and if you survive, you're innocent. If you're guilty, the gods will kill you. That's an ordeal. It's a test. And notice what Daniel says. I was found innocent, verse 22. You tested me to see if I was guilty, and I was found innocent. And notice what he said, Toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Therefore, I am innocent. Yes, Wes, or Les. Uh, Les point out that, that Daniel is respectful. He's following protocol. You, O king, live forever. You know, how many of us will go be arrogant Christians? Walk up and go, okay, I'm not going to say that, King, because I don't want you to live forever. You know, you're all going to die, and I, you need to die, but that's okay. Just die for your sins, and that's the only way you're going to get eternal life in this kingdom anyway. It's by dying. Oh, King, live forever. It's protocol, etc. You know, and we'll go on with it as well. But 
Is that a hand? Yes. Exactly. Very good. That's right. So, so the, uh, the other parallel, the other, it's not only a parallel, but the other thing to note, the lion's failure to eat Daniel was not a lack of hunger. In fact, remember, the fiery furnace destroyed them before they even got in. And these guys don't even t- reach the floor of the den. Yeah, so, yeah, the guards were burned before they even got into the furnace. And now uh, these uh, people who accused Daniel, uh, they're dead even before they reach the bottom. So clearly, we're reading these stories in light of one another, building on each other, and, and the, this theme uh, here as well. Now, all that, of course, tells us that what we're about to do next week in chapter 7 is quite justified. Namely, we're going to read 7 in light of 2. And if we didn't, we'd be lost. So it's a good thing. Because um, seven's going to be uh, 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 a bolo as well. All right, a few more things here before we go, but go ahead, Katrina. Yeah, again, do we make something of stone? Uh, uh, I'm not certain that we do here, but but it's interesting. So, oh, the stone. We're gonna we're gonna get to Jesus in a minute. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, we got to get this to Jesus now. So, yes. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, no, I think the 30 days is the duration of the statue. During the next 30 days, if anyone does this, they're going to be thrown in the lion's den. But that was overnight. Yeah, very good. Yep, no problem. Uh, all right, let's, let's, let's look a couple more things here in Daniel chapter 6, and then we've got we to gotta bring this to Jesus here. Well, exactly. Oh, that's a great moral story. Everyone hear that? They, they were against Daniel, but they were and ultimately against Daniel's God, because as a, a descendant of Abraham, Daniel 2 is a part of that Abrahamic promise. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, by the way, what I just said also in terms of those who bless you, I'll bless, and those who curse you, I'll curse, doesn't mean that Daniel's guaranteed to be spared from the lion's den, by the way. It just means that if you threw him in there, guess what's your fate going to be, dudes? Unless you repent. All right, you, you cannot get away uh, uh, with, and this is, we'll see this theme running through the New Testament as well. All right, Tim? Yeah, Tremper said that, right? Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, God is in control, no matter what. The, and, and this, as a result of that, this become really encouraging stories to all of us in whatever life situation we happen to be in. That's right, that's right. So, very good. All right, let's, let's look at the end of the chapter for a second now. Verse 26, uh, um, uh, Darius says, I make a decree that, all, that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear, which is you know, backfiring the other decree that these other guys wanted, right? Um, my men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, and here we go, for he is the living God, and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues, and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. All right, so, very good. Now, um, well, he knows Daniel. I know it's right, because, see, he doesn't want Daniel to go into the lion's den. So, however he knows about Daniel's God, it's because he already has probably an attachment to Daniel early in the story. That he's already privy to a lot of information. Exactly. Yep, very much. Very much so. Okay, so let's see. Here we go. Now, the next thing I want to notice, there's a couple things I want to point out here. We've got about five minutes, between five and 20 minutes left here. Um, 
And that's this. First, note the parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Note the parallels between Daniel and Jesus. They're both framed by jealous religious leaders. Right? The Pharisees, jealous religious leaders, frame Jesus. And Daniel's framed by jealous religious leaders. They are both arrested in a place of private prayer. Daniel's arrested in the, in the room. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both Darius, in the story of Daniel, and Pilate, in the story of Jesus, try to get them released, but can't do it. So both, in both cases, the governing authority try to get Jesus and Daniel uh, released. Darius and Pilate try to get them re- released. They're both uh, reporters claiming to be the king of the Jews. Oh, I'm sorry, they're both, uh, not, not the king, that's Jesus, I'm sorry. They're both re- reported as claiming political authority. Right? They, they both have political authority. Jesus claims indeed to be the king of the Jews. Uh, both report as claiming political authority. Number five, they're both given over for execution. Daniel's was an ordeal that was intended to be his execution. It didn't work. Okay. Now here's where the here's where the comparison becomes a little bit of a contrast. Interestingly, right? Because Daniel emerges without a scratch, but Jesus emerges with scars intact. Look at my hands. And my feet and my side is I. They both emerge from almost a tomb, right? Because Daniel's thrown down into a den. And, it's, and, and you guys notice uh, uh, the, the parallel that the stone is sealed over the entrance to the tomb, if you want to call it a tomb. It was intended to be Daniel's tomb. Daniel emerges alive. Jesus emerges alive, if you want to say it that way. Daniel never dies. Jesus does. So there's a contrast there. But Jesus retains scars, and Daniel doesn't even have a scratch. And then, uh, um, worthy of reading here, of course, is 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. All right, here we go. Uh, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality... Uh, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Daniel doesn't die in the lion's den, but Jesus does. Alright, one other parallel here is Acts 4, 26-28. This is all bonus material, free of charge. No extras. Daniel 4, 26 through 28. I'm sorry, did I say Daniel? Acts. Acts, Daniel. Won't bicker and argue about who killed who. It's a wedding, a happy occasion. Um, here we go. And, and this is, a, uh, um, I'm pretty sure this is Peter's sermon, right? This is Peter? It should be Peter. Uh, we're going to go with Peter for right now. Here we go. Uh, Peter's speech. After they've been arrested and imprisoned and then they got released by an angel and like, hey, what's going on? Uh, Verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
which you could say about Daniel too. Same thing, you, you could just make that same quote about Daniel for a second if you wanted. All right, obviously Jesus is a little bit more important. For truly in this city there were gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, whom, whom you anointed, but, but both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Right? And he goes on to describe, of course, um, the release of Jesus uh, um, as well. And uh, Peter is quoting Psalm 2. All right? And Psalm 2, I'm going I'm to go ahead and read that because I've got a couple minutes left here. Psalm 2 is, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, let's look at it for just a second here in the last one minute of class. Here we go. Psalm 2 is a coronation hymn. It's also widely used in the New Testament for the, Jesus as Messiah. And it basically begins with the first three verses referring to pagan kings and rulers who take their stand against God himself. All right? And the, so verses 1 through 3 are these pagan rulers and rebellion against God. Verse 4, Yahweh responds to them. And it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them, the people of verses 1 through 3. He will speak to them in his anger, and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, Yahweh himself, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Okay, now verses 7 through 9, Yahweh speaks to, to this king. It's a coronation hymn. And of course, it's messianic. It's about Christ, ultimately. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Yahweh speaking to Messiah, Jesus in this instance, or the king. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I'll give the nations as thy inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Verse 10 now is a reference back to the pagan kings now. Okay? There's three verses on each topic. Now to the pagan kings. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his, ma- his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Right, and it's verses 1 through 3 that was referenced by Peter in Acts uh, um, 4 there as well. So here we go. It's, it's Jesus doing what Daniel did, but doing it for us in a redemptive way, being crowned the king as well. I think we are to read the Daniel story in light of Jesus. Okay, so next week, we get to get into all the fun now. Now Daniel's going to get fun. So Daniel 7, and Daniel 7 will be our, our major focus. So we'll spend all week, I'm sure, on Daniel 7 um, as well. And then we'll, we'll, we'll chunk a few, a little bit of 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in next weekend as well. Let me close with a quick word of prayer if we can. So, Father, our prayer is to acknowledge you, as Daniel 4 says, your dominion is an everlasting dominion, and your kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, because you do according to the will, uh, your will, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off your hand or say to you, what have you done? Father, we acknowledge that you are that God who controls kings and kingdoms. And you've called us to be kings ourselves, to be priests ourselves, to rule 
in your kingdom. Help us each day to humble ourselves. Help us to not read these stories and, and, and look at these pagan kings and go, oh, they're so stupid. Because if it's not for the grace of God, there go all of us. We too need to be humbled before you and reminded that you are the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And that you establish kings, which we are. And you remove kings. So, Lord, be sovereign in our lives each and every day that we may start our day acknowledging you as the sovereign God of all creation. Studying your word, meditating upon it, prayer and fasting. Just some, some of the ways that we can acknowledge that you are the sovereign God beyond just doing so in our prayer now or beyond doing so as some intellectual ascent, but in a real, practical, tangible way. Help us to begin each day acknowledging that you are sovereign. And then, Lord, even though we walk through the valley of the valley of the shadow of death, help us to fear no evil because we know that you are with us. And your rod and your staff, they comfort us. So why do we worry about what we will eat or what we shall clothe ourselves? For if you array the grass of the field, will you not care for us? So we acknowledge that all, Lord, and pray that you would be grateful, that you would be gracious upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.